Welcome to The Soloist, an occasional podcast series about solo performance and solo performers. Hi, I'm Steve Greer, a theatre academic and writer, and in this series I talk with theatre makers about solo shows, how they get made, and their place in our wider culture. In this episode, I am talking with queer performance artist and theatre maker Scotty, whose work, if you haven't come across it before, straddles the worlds of cabaret, live art and theatre. It's work in which recurring themes of queerness and fatness and class, amongst a number of others, are both intimately biographical and the means of addressing or intervening in contentious debates in British culture. As you'll hear us discuss, class is particularly important, both as a theme within Scotty's shows and as a dimension of his professional life within an industry which is still, I think, often dominated by the tastes of white middle-class decision-makers and audiences. So one of the things that Scotty is great on, and you'll hear him describing his take on this, is the conscious labour that's required to develop new audiences in new places and to kind of challenge that trend. He's incredibly prolific. So in the months since this interview was recorded, and I've been sitting on this one for a while, he staged two new full-length shows and launched a number of other projects. When we sat down to chat to record this, it was a few days before the premiere of his show Putting Words in Your Mouth at the Roundhouse, which saw queer performers of colour lip-syncing to audio recordings of conservative and sometimes plainly racist gay men. Since then, he's also staged his memoir of working-class masculinity, a show called Bravado, the script of which is about to be published by Oberon Books and is going out on tour again this autumn. I started our conversation by asking him about this pace of production, about whether it was something he would choose or whether it was part of the reality of being a working artist. In its simplest form, if I don't earn a living, I have to find another job. Mm -hmm. I don't have a family or savings or a family home in the, in in a formal sense that I can go and live in. Yeah. Um and so yeah you've got to earn a living. Um I also um and this isn't my own thought, this is from Simon at Ducky. Simon kind of recognises the fact that, you know, I've got no training and so I learnt on the job. And so the my career is my university practice where I'm kind of working things out in a public forum and so I do a lot because I'm trying to learn things and work things out I think if you've gone back seven years you've seen some rubbish things (laughs) (laughs) and which kind of is testament to that it's testament to the fact that you know I'm I'm working out as we go along I think I uh, am motivated by what the noise is and what's being said. And if I feel like um, the things aren't being said or articulated properly, or if there's some misjustice or um, things that just generally make me angry. Mm-hmm. Like when I teach, I kind of tell people, like, like what makes you fucked off? And, you know, if it's your Tamagotchi collection, then don't be an artist. Like, if you're angry at the price of milk like move on like do tapestry or some shit um you know with fatness it's so closely related to me with class as well this demonizing of fat people because you know what shall we do because the fat people fat common people haven't worked out that's so bad for their health and so they're all upset so let's just tax their sugar intake um and yeah it just kind of makes me it makes me angry and so i then come back to it um, and I'll keep coming back to it until you lot fucking work it out for yourselves. Because I'm just thinking a few different shows which touch on that, that working on um, kind of Headlight Queen, which went for, what, three, four years? Four years. Which you did with 
um, Amy LeMay and I can't think of the, the, the model's name or the woman's name. Felicity, Felicity Hayward. Felicity Hayward, yeah. Dr. Charlotte Cooper. Ah, yes, who's got a brilliant book. Um, yeah, yeah, for activism. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we've had a queen that was like, uh, that, I guess a lot of my responses then are what some people might want to call punk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're responsive, they're a bit poke in the eye, they're a little bit like come and have a go then um, on the face of it. And then when you get into that environment, it's something very different. Um, I think Hamburger Queen for me is something that I see with real pride of like, you know, on the face of it, it was just 10 people come down to the Royal Vox Tavern and have a laugh at a bunch of fat people. And then when they got there, whilst they were scoffing a burger, which was in a donut, they were listening to some really beautiful heavy experiential that one um accounts of like fatness and fat rad and um body diversity and it wasn't a fucking boots advert or a dove advert which you know (laughs) like oh love yourself even though like the person who's saying love yourself is thin and beautiful and has just got freckles it's always like love yourself it'd be good if there was less of yourself (laughs) yeah 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 (laughs) Love yourself, but go to the fucking weight loss pills aisle. And it's, um, and so yeah, I knew again that was through this sense of that all the television at the time was all like Britain's biggest loser and embarrassing fat bodies. And I just kind of wanted to counter that culturally and to create some noise for people like me who. Um, had a complex relationship with fatness and um, but also wasn't ashamed of their fatness. Um, but understood where it came from. I say this a lot, like, when I make a piece of work, I think, what's, what's my mum going to think? Um, because, you know, my mum wouldn't go into a restaurant that's got fabric napkins on her own. She'd just think, that's not for me. Mm-hmm. Um, my mum will, however, go into the tape because the tape has somehow communicated to my mum that that's not a frightening space and you don't need to know the rules. My mum wouldn't think about coming into an art institution and or coming into a place where there's fear. So I find, I try and always find ways that it makes people feel like they're being looked after. And if that looking afterness is temporal, mm-hmm. that's fine. Um, that it's value for money and that it's um, the stuff that I want to experience myself. And a lot of those things are quite working class and quite... And so they naturally do end up being um, manifestations of kind of working class culture or working men's clubs or pubs or the stuff that was around when I was a kid that made me feel like I was in showbiz. You know, the reason why I use a lot of cabaret or light entertainment or like te- television formats with mm-hmm. my work is because um, it's familiar. I understand how it works. I don't have to have letters after my name to legitimise myself um, to use that form. Yeah. And when I go into performance art spaces and I, you know, I criticise it or I question it, quite often it's told, "Well, you didn't, you didn't quite get it, did you?" It's like, no, no, this isn't like if you if I didn't get it, you've done the wrong job. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm quite playful with it and I'm quite loud about what I think about the live art world and performance art world um, because I just, I just think as a sector, 
it's a bit like a Tudor reenactment society. Like some work that happened in the 60s and the 70s was quite popular. And so people are still kind of reenacting it, but in different venues and a different costume. Yeah, and sometimes literally reenacting it. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. yeah, and I just think like we've got more to offer. And so um, that world didn't particularly want me and I didn't particularly want it. And so I kind of thought, right, well, we'll make my own thing. And... Um, I'm not saying I invented that thing, but I think a lot of other artists would do felt that at a, at a similar time. Um, one that's been some money is Briny, and um, we, we've kind of got a running gang that kind of doesn't fit in both worlds. But you know, like actually, it's been to the detriment of both of our careers, where you know now we're being pseudo legitimised um, through studio spaces in arts institutions. Mm-hmm. You know, um, unlike branding, I don't think I'll, I'll ever be legitimate because I come from cabaret. Um, and you look at our reviews and it all, always, always mentions the fact that we're kind of outsiders or we come from a different world and how that's like somehow means, mm, well, they tried the best. So this like you're kind of like exoticized and then that's made a kind of like... No, it's, no, it's not positive. It's you are... It's a bit like, well, they come from a world of where people put one pound in a pint jars and glitter slush, and that's not real art, is it? Rufus Norris. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, you don't come through the traditional route, you, di- you weren't trained at the right school, you don't have the history of theatre behind you, and so you're illegitimate in, the, in this world, and if the theatre and live performance world loves to do anything, it's to make you feel like you don't belong or that you're not good enough or that you shouldn't be there. And it's and that's it's really interesting to hear you say that because it's so absurd that you have a, a kind of a culture which is so dependent on collaboration, which still feels the need to like produce these hierarchies and, and like insist that some people don't belong and can't take part in it mm. um, and I wonder whether that's also a really important element of the work that you of the kind of cabaret informed stuff that you've done things like uh, camp coming at New Year's Eve and uh, camp from the estate I feel like I am I'm still creating a world and there's still a politic there and I'm delivering something to an audience and camp is largely to an audience who hasn't seen that type of performance before you know, rock up in town halls in St Helens or in Stoke, where like this, in their words, this shit doesn't happen around here. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's more, there's more on my shoulders because there's three hours of me on stage, holding it all together, making it cohesive, funny, and engaging. And I've curated them all, and I've put it into the right order, and I've edited some of their acts, and I've. Um, you know, made the world as such. So mm-hmm. it means that I'm, I'm like more responsible in that space. Okay. Um, whereas in solo world, and I, you know, I usually make solo stuff when I want to talk to a theatre audience. And actually, what I've come to realise with making this show is I'm coming into the the, the theatre for like a sit down, end on, watch me or watch it because I want to talk to white. Middle classes, like 
you know, like theatre thinks it's like this engaging, diverse world, and it definitely isn't. And, you know, like institutions haven't quite worked out how to communicate to working class audiences or audiences of colour. Now, I know how to talk to audiences um, who are working class, and that's why I make work across England. Um, they ain't worked it out, and I'm not going to tell them how to do it because I'll take one of their jobs in 20 years' time, and, you know. Yeah. I'll be Princess Diana. <laughs> um, and I, I just genuinely now feel like I'll come into this space when I need to. So do you feel like you've kind of... given up, as it were, on the possibility of... If you come into a kind of conventional theatre space, the presumption is that it's going to be this kind of dominant, middle-class white audience. No, it is. And um, that... In London, definitely. If I go elsewhere, I do certain things to bring an audience in. So I don't, I don't rock up to a place with a solo show and expect people to turn turn up. Mm -hmm. Quite often, what I'll do is, in case for somewhere like Saint Helens, started a year long relationship of going there, creating small things, making stuff happen, making myself known, doing press, getting ambassadors involved, getting local artists, and so. Then, of course, then when I do a show at the Citadel, which is like the largest theatre space in town, of course 300 people buy a ticket and turn up for it and want to be engaged by it. Um, it's also to do with vocabulary, the way that I communicate and the way that I talk about my work and the language that I use in copy um, is, it engages a different type of audience. I think the first show that I did here at the Roundhouse was 72% and new audience for the rent house. And um, I take that with pride to be yeah. like, yeah, I can I bring people who wouldn't wouldn't necessarily go to institutions. Um, and then the key is once you've delivered something like Han, once you've delivered something like Hamburger Queen, that then that audience is engaged with you and they're ready to like listen to other things that you've got to say and that's when you can pull a stinger out like the rest of Scotty or that you can ask them to help fund your granddaughter common artist or something. So I think there is a theory behind the way that I approach work and the way that I approach spaces and come into spaces. And I'm gonna be in spaces a bit more now that I've worked that out. Um you worked out kind of what they're what are they good for and how they can and how they can well essentially how they can fund my company to keep going so that I can make a show in a shop in a high street in Hull that for 600 people turn up to over two days and uh, like proper like jaw drops people and makes them say like that like hundreds of people say oh I'm great nothing like this ever happens here and then you feel like well it actually never got tangible effects and that's largely being funded by and posh people who went to the theatre. <laughs> Before I came over, I was listening to a short talk that you gave about your experience of crowdfunding when you were raising money for um, the work with the project with your, your grandfather, the mm-hmm. real William um, Gallagher, um, and, and which ended up a whole different number of kind of bits of work that came out of it, but an exhibition called um, No Need to Shout, is that yeah. right? That you were really, I thought, candid, I mean, partly because it was to setting the hats, really candid and explicit about the, the huge amount of work involved in that um, in that crowdfunding funding process and also the emotional and kind of 
yeah, the emotional stress of kind of continually questioning whether your work is good enough, whether the idea is good enough, whether the people you're working with treat you either professionally or personally, you know, why aren't they turning up for the money? That it felt like a really honest and um, quite blunt cautionary tale, I think maybe for, for other people who are kind of come considering it. Um, my sense was that you would you wouldn't ever go back to crowdfunding unless the kind of stars aligned in a really particular configuration. I think so, but I don't think I was candid because of the setting. I think I am. I think I'm just, you know, I call myself a loudmouth and a troublemaker, and that's because I am, like, where I'm from, you call out something, because in calling it out, it no longer becomes a thing or it becomes the start of discussion. Yeah. And I think in this world, people don't particularly like that, and I haven't learned to shut my mouth. Um, and so yeah I am quite honest I am, I was quite honest about how crowdfunding was shit it's demoralising it ruins fucking mental health it's something that our funders our governing bodies are um, encouraging us to do more of so they can give us less money yeah um, and that's tough and you know the thing is because we've got like a few Twitter followers they think oh well then you get some money from them so what are you worried about and you're like it don't work like that though. It doesn't work like that. And I think it's to do with our relationship with art in uh, the UK. Like I haven't found this when I've been like elsewhere in the world that like people are so skeptical of art in this country. Like if they hear a song, like by Adele, yeah. they go, Oh, that's a song. Oh yeah, it's a song. <laughs> if they see a piece of art, they go, That's not art. I could do that. And so you think, well, no, where did that come from? Where did this like no, that's not art come from. Because I can tell you, if I call it fucking art, and I'm an artist, yeah. I'm, I'm like, if you're a roofer, and you tell me that's a roof, I'm going to fucking believe you that that's a roof. Because I'm not qualified to tell you that. You know, this is a lousy argument there. Yeah. And, but, but there's a conversation to be had about, about that, the kind of the thing of like art as a kind of on-off switch. Is that art? Is it not art? And the conversation that I try and have with like my students, particularly when we're talking about if you're going to be critical of performance... Of, of like your job is in a sense is not to kind of go is it theatre or not is to go what did it do like if you think it's if you thought it was good theatre what was the basis of that value judgement and those are a whole bunch of see, to me at least far more interesting questions yeah. about yeah. what art is or isn't but I think I think there's a major failure of artists in the sector that if people are doing that like we've communicated something wrong I mean people have never said to me the only people who've said to me, um, but is it, is it before, is it like that? It's only been other arty knobheads. Like, I don't have, like, mums, I, like, my work's quite popular with certain mums. Mums, they don't come to my work being like, but is it art? It's like, because I'm like, I couldn't care less if you thought it was or it wasn't. But if you're, like, getting something from it, we'll call it whatever you want. Yeah, so, so in a way it's like, when you make that question the priority, that seems to be really revealing. If that's your problem, then what's your problem? Who wants to make art anyway? It's embarrassing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's... Uh, I want to ask, uh, chat a bit about two, two, two different bits of work and then I'll let you go because I know you want to get back to rehearsal. Um, so it's... I mean, we kind of flagged it earlier a little bit, talked about the, the worst of Scotty. You mm-hmm. worked with uh, Chris Good. I did, yeah. yeah. Um, and never I've heard of him ever since that. <laughs> <laughs> and you never spoke again. Um, I guess a few really kind of 
practical questions. I guess the first thing is, how did you come to, to work with Chris? Was that through was that through Roundhouse, or do you know him through another kind of set of connections? Yeah, I mean, when I said to the Roundhouse, I want Chris Good to direct the solo show, they kind of laughed at me, like, I don't think that's going to happen. And I was like, no, I've known Chris since I was 14. He used to be the artistic director of Camden People's Theatre, where we used to go on a Saturday and pay 20p to come in. And so, um, that was, <laughs> they were like, um, okay then, ask him. And I sat down with Chris, I said, look, I don't, I, I know everyone wants me to make a solo show, so I'm going to make a solo show. And I just, I, I just think too many solo shows are about how great artists are. And I want to tell people that I'm, I've been a bit of a dickhead and I think I want to call it the worst of Scotty. And he went, okay then, yeah, let's make it. So you, the, the sense there that you, that you had to make a solo show, that there was kind of what pressure from like... There's an expectation from the sector to be like, oh, now let's hear your ideas like oh okay we like you in a capillary sense we know you're a bit of a troublemaker we know that you make non-traditional work um now in a room with some funding go and so it's like oh right I'll do this then because that gives me loads of shit loads of money for it I think I got like 55 grand out of the arts cuts for it so I was like yeah alright we'll do it um and I just felt like there was stuff that I had to say as well that was like pent up before I was going to legitimise myself in this world. So, um, you know, I wanted to tell people why I didn't have an education. I wanted to tell people my route into the arts. I wanted to tell people that I can be this and that and this sort of person. Um, and to say to an audience who at that time were largely a variety audience, like, okay, going to like change a bit now. And if you, I want you to hear this stuff. Mm-hmm. And if you're willing to hear it and you like still alright with being my mate, then let's let's like have a relationship. And then if not, then this is your buyout moment. Uh-huh. It's because it felt like watching it and thinking back on it, that it's this show which is in so many ways like framed around the act of confession. Mm-hmm. You have this beautiful photo booth, um, which allows you to look at the audience and not look at the audience or um and but it's it's a form of confession which isn't like asking for like forgiveness or salvation. Um, that that's not what it's oriented on. No, because I mean I did that being a Roman Catholic for fifteen years. Um, I don't want I don't you know like at the end of I was going to say famously as if uh, at the end of that piece I had seen No Je Ne Regret Rien and it's you know there's a double edged sword to that but it's um, I said to Chris I'm I'm definitely I'm not sorry for the things that I've done because if I say sorry it sort of excuses them and I don't want any excuses to be for the behaviour that I've put on other human beings um it's just like I don't like to make shows with a conclusion I'll be like and now you'll feel this way yeah. I think like here's some rubbish now you work it out because I think I mean the idea that it finishes with like mess that seems to be like another like recurring trope of a lot of the stuff like literally figuratively yeah that the, the invitation to to give you some kind of like glorious or difficult or queer mess and kind of give them the job of the pleasure of sorting it out mm. um, there's a really I, I show students it the um, um, the little short film uh, Le de Toilette I think 
Oh, yeah. which, which, which just proceeds with you. Absolutely, absolutely immaculate um, picture of you at the beginning of it, and then you kind of uh, you start sniffing these beautiful different fragrances and, and clones, and then proceed to trash yourself. Um, it's one of my favourite, like, whenever I have to, like, a short piece of queer performance I can show to, like, my 141st year students. Um, Here's what you'll be in three years. <laughs> but it's, it's, I think, what they, what they respond to and also find really difficult sometimes is the mess, is what to make sense of and how to make sense of the mess that appears in, in, in that kind of final sequence. Yeah, um, it's about, um, you know, at the start of my career, that mess was about my relations, my very emotional, charged relationship with food mm-hmm. and class. And I think now when I use mess, it's to show, to physicalise the subject that's being spoken about. And I use it less with food now because um, I think that's way too political. I think if we live in a country where millions of people are living out of food banks, I as an artist uh, need to be a bit more mindful about where I use that. I keep on getting people texting me saying, I'm out of conference and yet again to be called risky. Um, <laughs> uh, there's like a risky alert on my phone. Um, it means that the industry has this perception of who I am and what I'm going to do. That often means I have to spend a lot of time convincing people that I'm not going to throw pig's blood everywhere. That's this thing that like follows me around. It was like, are you really going to do that? Is that are there any like things that we should be aware of? It's like... No, not really. I mean, like... So it's interesting. On the one hand, you maybe have this reputation for being outspoken and saying how it is. Mm. But there's also this great fear that you're not saying how it is, that that somehow you're holding back, that there's going to be some... People are so frightened of... I wouldn't say so frightened. I think there are certain people who are frightened of my work. And, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot recently... The only reason why I'm earning a living and why I am able to be an artist is because there are, like, some brave people in this industry. Um, There are some, like... And they're usually queers or rad femmes who are, like, I totally understand what you're saying, like, who get it, or or who have a similar experience of life that I have done. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if it was left to, you know, the great white male... um, I just, I wouldn't be able to, I'd be banging on doors still, Mm -hmm. um, as lots of artists still are, you know, as lots of outsiders are. I think that that fear is something that pisses me off, but something that I enjoy endlessly. (laughs) Something that I'm like, oh God, right, so let me deal with your fear of like being told something about like the working class experience or fatness. Let me deal with that fear because you can't get it around your head. And then the other side of me is like, yes, be fucking afraid of me. <laughs> you to be afraid of me. Because, but I'm, I'm not unpredictable. That I, I guess that's what I find uh, upsetting is that there is this fear that I'm, I might do something that I said I wouldn't do. No, I'm honest and truthful and I'm predictable because I'm going to tell you before I... Before I, you know, theatrically smash you around the head, I'm going to go, careful, because something's going to happen in an hour. So that was the brilliant Scotty talking to me at the Roundhouse towards the end of last year now. So apologies there for sitting on the interview for so long. 
However, maybe there's a bit of fortuitous timing as Bravado is about to go out on tour. Uh, Manchester, Folkestone, Leeds, Peterborough and Brighton, I think are confirmed dates so far. For venue and booking details, go to Scotty's website. So that's scotty.co.uk, Scotty with two T's and two E's. The script for the show, as I already said in the intro, is about to be published by Oberon Books. So look it up on Amazon or find it through your preferred independent bookseller. Uh, what else to say? Oh yeah, for more about the projects I get up to and other episodes in this series, why not visit my website, stevegreer.org. For now though, thanks for listening.